So my name is Nyanadara and I'm here with Sadanandi and Nagabodi. Hello. At, at, hello, 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 welcome, hello. welcome. We're all at Adistana, which is a very important part of our Buddhist community. And it's where Sangharachita lived in his last few years of his life. We're here because in a few days time, on the 8th of April, we're going to be part of a big online celebration of Sri Ratna Day, when we celebrate our Buddhist community and the founding of our Buddhist community, which happened in April 1967. And the day is a collaboration between myself, I'm our international National Movement Coordinator, Future Dharma Fund, and the Buddhist Centre Online. So this is going out as part of a series of Buddhist Centre Online podcasts. So the theme for the day, which we might talk about a little bit, let's see, is roots in the earth, or roots in the sky. Like I said, I've got Sadanandi with me. So Sadanandi got involved in Sri Ratna in Glasgow, and she was studying art at the time. And for 20 years, in fact, she was living at Taraloka, a women's retreat centre not a million miles from here, on the border between England and Wales. She was chair there for 13 years, and more recently she's moved to Adistana. And she was also chair here for a while. She's just relatively recently handed that on, and now she's part of what's called the Dharma team. Nagabodi got involved in Sri Ratna in the early 1970s. He was ordained in 1974 and he started Windhorse Publications and has published many, many books, including a great number of Sankarachita's books. And recently, Nagabodi has published a book about Sankarachita. In fact, the first biography that's been written about his life since he passed away four years ago. Big welcome to you both. Really, really wonderful to have you here. It was particularly lovely because we've just finished a retreat that we led together on the Bodhicharya Vatara. I thought I'd just start by asking you some of your first memories of Sri Day celebrations. Of course, we used to call it FWBO Day. So maybe Sudden Monday, what was your first recollection of it? I was living in Glasgow and the celebrations would always be happening probably in London, sometimes in Birmingham. Hmm. Basically, everybody went. Everybody went. I don't know whether we hired coaches and we went down from Glasgow, whether we caught a train or something. I can't remember the travel. If you were a Mitchell or an order member, you went to these things. Mm. And then you would hear talks, probably by Nagabodi, for instance, or whatever. And there'd be stalls with books and things like that and crowds of people. Did people come from other centres in a similar way? So everybody came everybody from came. Manchester, everyone everybody came Everybody came. Yeah. Even in Manchester, they had one of those FWO Tree Ratna Days in the town hall, I think, which is a very prestigious yeah. building, yeah. beautifully decorated, you know, with all the kind of fancy town hall stuff. And then we, we took over that. Everybody went there. Yeah. And I suppose we did a day trip. Although all the order members stayed on, usually for an order day, which followed. Right. So what was that? So was that, that, was, that was, was WB. It was W O Day, which was the, it was the anniversary of the order being set up a day later. Well, a so year all the mixers went home and all the women like stayed that, on. Yeah. And what was the atmosphere like? It was like a very big festival with prestigious talks. People that you'd only heard about or written books or whatever gave all the right. talks okay. and stuff like that. And it, sometimes it was setting a certain kind of tone for the movement. You got a chance to see people that you'd only heard about. Like certain for, for me, for instance, living in Glasgow, certainly in the first, gosh, maybe the first 10 years. The nearest Dhammacharani was maybe Manchester, okay. really London. Even when I got ordained, there was only 100 Dhammacharanis worldwide. So, so it really gave you a much bigger sense of what was out there in terms of what the FWBO at the time. Yeah, and you heard people. People. You heard of people and then you met them and things like that. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And what about you, Nagabodi? I'm assuming this celebration happened right from the beginning. It did. At least I got involved, properly involved in 1971. My first contact was in 1970. 
I think Sangharakshita had it in mind always to have celebrations and festivals. I think one reason why he ordained the first 12 people on April the 8th was so that there could be a weekend or a two-day festival celebrating FWBO Day and WBO Day. Okay. He thought ahead in that sort of way. You know, he believed in celebrating Wesak Chakra Day. Partly it was this injunction of the Buddhas to meet regularly in large numbers, but also from the beginning he wanted wanted us to have our own traditions. It was part of building a community that really had a sense of substance and continuity. I think the first ones I can remember are at Pundarika. There probably was one in the year before that when we didn't have a centre, but I don't have a so, memory So tell it. us about Pundarika. Pundarika was, I suppose you'd call it our first real centre. The original place where people met Sakura was in the basement of a friend's orientalist shop. There was room, I think they could cram 20 people into it. Unfortunately, I never went there, although I got involved during that era. Burned it, down It had a, well, there was a fire. Yeah, yeah. It was actually the end of the lease that finished the oh, place okay. off. In the time when I got properly involved, we were homeless. Mm-hmm. It was a little bit like rave parties. The word would go out on the day where we were going to meet. It might be in the basement of a new age club, or it could be in a room of a macrobiotic restaurant. And so somewhere along the line, FWB or throughout the day or... As well, was. then we get this place in Archway, I think a disused piano factory, which Buddha Dasa mainly knocked into a, a centre downstairs reception room, upstairs shrine room. We were very small. I mean, we're talking 30, 40 people. It was Tri Ratna. And we'd meet, Banti would be there, of course. He'd give a talk, usually, some meditation. And I can remember several festival days where he'd show slides of his farewell trip to India taken by Terry de la Mer. And so he'd sort of sit there and see Banti with his various teachers, with Dardo meeting the Dalai Lama, with Lama Govinda, all these beautiful, wonderful two-by-two colour slides that Terry had shot. And seeing those slides, what did that add to your sense of Sangharachita? Well, there's a photograph of Banti sitting on a train, side-on view of Banti holding a cup of tea, through the window, the Indian train barred windows, faces crammed up against the window, people who've given him. And that picture in glorious colour, I can remember saying to Banti that it was like, wow, suddenly this rather eccentric bloke in London with his long hair and his rings and his robes with his thick woolly underneath. I mean, it's not that I didn't have a lot of time and respect for him already, but that picture, it was as if it just opened up a sense of the world he also inhabited. A lot of people don't realise that he had quite a substantial career, for want of a better word. Well, 20 years in India. Yeah, before he even started the FWO. Yeah, and 20 years in India, and in particular that photograph was him, I can't remember which town, I don't think it was Nagpur, but it was a town where there was a Buddhist population and the people crammed up against the window would have been a tiny proportion of a huge crowd of Buddhists who'd converted under the leadership of Dr. Ambedkar. You know, who Banti had worked among for probably the last maybe 10 years of his time in India. And that's, of yeah. course, a really important part of our Buddhist community, yeah. isn't it? There'll be people tuning in on Sri Ratna Day to this yes. online festival and celebrating Sri Ratna oh, yeah. in India. Oh, yeah. Thousands of people. And probably more colourfully. <laughs> right. We will. Yeah. yeah. But that would be a glorious part of these festivals. It, was, it became almost a little bit of a community joke. He's going to get the slides out again. Oh, OK. <laughs> and, you know, it was a bit of a yeah. shame when he stopped doing it because it yeah. was always a bit of a thrill. Just seeing that world, seeing Banti in it, it, it definitely filled in something of the picture of 
the world that Sangrachta was plugging us into. I suppose you probably heard the stories, but there's something about seeing an image, isn't there? Yeah, because if you listen to his talks, he so often says, when I was in Kalimpong, that yeah. has become a, one of the jokes we saw. Of, when I was in Kalimpong, <laughs> we'd sort of ape him a bit in that way. Yeah. And just jumping off from that, Sadhanandi, when you were studying art, was there a particular attraction to Buddhist symbology, or were you turned on by that in terms of Chiratna, or the way Bante talked about that? No, I got involved because I'd, I was going out with a bloke who took a lot of drugs. Okay. And uh, he was involved. He started getting interested in Buddhism. You know, he was the sort of guy that smoked. He, I mean, he finished the joint that he couldn't manage the night before, as soon as we woke up, sort of right. thing. Yeah. And he was very, very interested in all the Alan Watts Buddhism, all that sort of stuff. And then he moved to Glasgow and I carried on in London. And then he contacted me and said, I'm getting involved in the Glasgow Buddhist Centre. And there's one in Croydon, which is where I lived at the time. Will you go to Croydon? And I went to the, I thought, okay, so I went to Croydon Buddhist Centre and listened to a talk and got taught meditation down there. And then years later, when I went to Padmaloka, I said to Padmavadra, did you teach me to meditate? And he said, I did, I remember oh, so that it. was Padmavadra. Yeah, it was Padmavadra. In, in, in between, Croydon. yeah, in between mm. Indian trips. I think he was, okay. he was in India a lot during that time. Now, were you, was Nagabodi around? Because you were in Croydon at some time. I, I left, Vanti asked me to move to the LPC when we launched the LPC. So in 79, I was I was in Croydon from 75 till whenever it was we opened the LPC. So I was there for about three or four years, yeah. which was essentially when we turned it from a community with a few classes into a fairly full-on centre, you know, able to move into Croydon and start you know, running classes there yeah. as well. Yeah, so you were both in Croydon, interesting. I didn't know that. I don't well, know that you said I knew that you were in Glasgow. Yeah, so and I moved to Glasgow maybe yeah. six months after I went along to the Croydon Centre. Yeah. And do you remember when you first encountered Sangharachana? Yeah. You'd listen to his lectures. Yeah. Okay. First of all, you'd check whether the tape recorder was working at the right speed before you realised <laughs> that's, yeah. that's how he spoke. <laughs> but I would have maybe gone to public talks, you know, maybe in London, travelling down to London from Glasgow and seeing him give talks. But he did tour places, okay. and he came to Glasgow at least twice, once just to see the Sangha, once definitely because Wintour's Publications was based there, and I was involved in Wintour's Publications. Mm. Oh, so you were involved in Wintour's Publications I as was. well? She was. Oh. was my boss. I was that right? Oh, and oh she so was, got a long history. She was, I can't think of the word. Star? <laughs> she was the star. She was the star. Wonderful. Anyway, if you look through a lot of the books, you'll see three Sander Street G20, Glasgow G20, and that's all coming through when I was working there, coming through the women's community in Glasgow. In one community, I remember I was the one that was cooking him supper. Somebody made lasagna, it might have been me, and then I made profiteroles, the French way, so mm. choux pastry, cream, and then hot chocolate sauce. And I offered this to him, and he said, thank you, but I won't take the chocolate sauce. And I said, no, no, you have to take the chocolate sauce. He said, no, really, honestly, I, I won't take the chocolate sauce. I said, no, no, you have to take the chocolate sauce. He said, all right, I'll take the chocolate sauce. <laughs> so, so I thought maybe he's like a Buddha. You have to ask him three times. Oh, okay. But then later I heard he was on a diet, so I blew the diet, I'm afraid. And did he enjoy the professional I didn't ask sauce? him. <laughs> and then another time he came for a tea party, a Wintour's Publications tea party. But, of course, in between, like, I would be writing to him. I wrote to him to ask for ordination. I would go on solitaries. There was one particular solitary retreat, which possibly was three weeks long, where I probably wrote him two letters, sometimes 10 to 16 pages long. 
and I would get these great postcards back. I did write back to you. Yeah. Sometimes it would be waiting for me on my, on my return. Oh, so you'd, you'd be on your solitary, you'd write the letter, put it in the post box, yeah. and then when you got back to yeah. Glasgow, you'd have yeah. a postcard. Yeah, somewhere in the archives, embarrassingly, there's going to be these very, very long letters from me. Well, that's the thing that I learned recently, is all these letters, yeah. they're all in boxes. Yeah, they somewhere are. in Eddie Snow. Yeah. Yeah. Everything got logged. I mean, somebody, never me, but somebody extremely discreet had to read them all. In advance, right. I think, if yeah. I remember rightly. Not quite sure why. Partly, maybe he logged contents or something, but no, it was all very thoroughly administered. And I can remember Bounty's post box in the morning. There'd be these thick envelopes. Yeah. And according to that person, a really high percentage of, of the letters were from women. Far more women wrote to him. Yeah. And they wrote usually quite long, letters. long, thorough Letters. Maybe because we had less contact with him generally. I, th- I think. Uh, thinking about it now. Yeah, talking to about that earlier today uh, with Andrew Pushback, that there were less, for example, study seminars for women than mm. there were for men. But if I think back to Bantis' correspondence, which by all accounts, you know, he was good in replying, mm. a lot of women did nevertheless have quite a stronger connection with him on some levels than many of the men because they wrote to him personally. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always been struck. He did seem to write to people. Like, he'd spent a lot of time, it seems for me, from my perspective, mm. responding to people's letters, you yeah. know, a lot of time. Yeah. And even, well, later on, in the last few years of his life, I mean, he saw loads of people. Do you remember that, those lists that used to come out in Shabda about who he'd seen mm. in, during the month? Mm. Like 60 people sometimes. And I remember mm. when we've got big, like, 80 people retreats here. I remember the Eight Guidelines retreat, which is a women's going for refuge retreat held at Adistana by the Team Loka team. And he would be seeing three women a day from that retreat. I think one of the things that happens on Sri Ratna Day is we talk about Bante as a founder... Yeah. That word sounds quite distant and quite official and almost organisational. <laughs> but it seems that one of the impacts that he's had is that direct person-to-person impact. I mean, I've I met him, I think, three times one-to-one. And he did have a real impact on me in a very, very positive sense. So, I mean, I was going to ask you about that, Sadananda, because your talk is called The Electric Charge of Communication. So can you tell us a little bit about that title and how you came to, yeah. came to that title? And is that connected with this phenomena of him meeting all these people and sparking people off? Well, I don't know if it's particularly connected with Bante and you know, Sankarajdan meeting lots of people, or me meeting him even. But he set a gold standard, if you like, of Kalyana Mitrata. And I have experienced a fabulous Kalyana Mitrata through my life. It still would make me cry when I think about it. I mean, your, your early years in True Ratna, which I think is really probably the first 10 years, and some of the communication that goes on in that period changes your life. And I can remember conversations that have changed my life in that respect and still feel tremendous gratitude for the women in particular. It wasn't just women. I had some very dynamic guys in the Glasgow Buddhist Centre really supporting me. It was like you suddenly you were groundless in that moment in that conversation, or you were seen in a way that you you suddenly saw yourself. I mean, it's very hard to describe just the impact of real communication on you, especially when you're not used to it and you're still growing so much. It's what I do now. Do you see what I mean? Because I've had such good experience of it. Mm. It's what I do, sort of professionally almost. You know, yeah, yeah, way, <laughs> you're a professional Kalyana Mitchell. I am, in a way. <laughs> I am. It doesn't take much, yeah. And, of course, that is what knits our community together, isn't it? Is those kinds of connections that you build up with people. And also the kind of random little connections that you have with people that you just encounter. Mm. Yes, and so it is connections. And sometimes Kalyana Mitchell is dependent on connections. And sometimes it's just dependent on the moment. 
and something happens in the moment. That's the electric charge. In a way. Well, that's kind of why I said the little random yeah. moment. I mean, I remember one retreat I went on where there was a particular order member. I won't name her, Dharma Charani. I think she was very into sort of taking that hand mindfulness. It was before the mindfulness movement really took off in our movement in a particular way. I think she could see I was very uncentered and speedy. I, I can't imagine that. Can you not? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know now. I don't know whether you're just teasing me or not. <laughs> so I'm walking around Taraloka and she just sort of passed me. And as she passed me, she'd say, in, out, deep. Yeah. And I thought it was just a bit of a laugh. You know, I thought, ha ha, you know, and I carried on. And then like, something else would happen. I'd meet her and I'd meet her in a queue waiting for the suit. And she'd go, in, out, deep, slow. And then I stood up to make an offering in the puja. She happened to be the kind of queue, you know, and she happened to be quite near me. And she just said, in, out deep slow and she undid me on that retreat she totally undid me just that just Mm. simply that and that's not it is connection but it's more it's like Mm. you're riding on a perception of somebody in that moment where i don't know what you're doing you're just working some sort of magic in a very trustworthy way Mm. she wasn't doing anything but it's all very simple in a way well she was aware of you she's aware of me she's reflecting something back to me and actually i think at that point i might not have been living in communities i might have been having a, a year or so out of community most of the time i've lived in women's communities I went back to Glasgow and I spoke to my friends and I said, I need to step back into community. Can we set up a new community now? I need more input in my life. You just realise when you get the right input, just Mm. what impact it has on you. In some ways, it's just Mm. simply awareness. Awareness of another person. Awareness of another person, but being willing to step into that person in that moment. I was talking to you one time here. I think you said, I've been living in communities for 30 years. Is that true? That was a few years ago. So I have no idea what the calculation is, but I moved into my first community in 1984 Mm. and I've had 18 months out. Well, that's almost 40 years now. Yeah. And I remember, I remember just feeling really impressed by that. that Thank you. you. You'd been living in that way for Even such a long so time. Even though I'm so speedy and all over no, the place. No, no, actually, I wasn't being ironic when I said that. It's not my impression of you, but you always seem very responsive. Like, there was a lovely moment at the end of the retreat when you tried to find me because mm. you thought I could do with getting off site for a little bit. Yeah. It's, just, it's characteristic of you, both I've learned that through reputation, but also now direct experience. <laughs> So, yeah, Nigel Brody. So I remember my first meeting with you, actually, in New Zealand and yep. Wellington in yep. the late 90s or mid-90s. And, again, I remember being really struck by just how responsive you were. Mm. You're just very, very responsive. And I really appreciated it. You took me seriously and talked to me. In a way, it wasn't anything special, but in a way, it really was. Mm. So has that been part of your understanding about what we're trying to do, what, what this Buddhist community is about? Yeah, One of my very first experiences on my first retreat, I just remember enjoying a quality of openness and communication with with the people around me that I hadn't known before. And I had very good friends, people at university. You weren't a lonely man coming along to that? Absolutely not. No, I I had very good friends, interesting people with interest, starting out on interesting careers, living with them now in London after university, who all thought I'd gone mad getting involved in this Buddhist thing. Going to this first retreat, it was partly the quality of a kind of peer friendship, which was about being very open, transparent to each other. It was interesting how on the very last morning of the retreat, over breakfast, we were saying, what what kind of work do you do? In most ordinary conventional conversation, that would have been the first thing that you talked about. And this was two weeks later. We kind of met in a really sort of simple way in which we got to know each other in a unique way that I wasn't familiar with. 
My other friends, it was clever, it was witty, it was intellectually stimulating, and we shared our lives and our concerns, but there was a really simple level of human connection that I'd experienced. And there was one encounter in particular, a woman called Mamaki, or became Mamaki, she died some years ago. But we were, again, sitting at the table, having a conversation about some Dharma life issue. And coming out of my sort of world with my way of talking, somebody said something. I said, when I hear that, I feel really worried. And Mamaki just said, well, you don't look it. And it was it was a shock. Something in me had been nailed, an act, uh, a front, a way of being in the world. It had just been seen. There was no blame. It was a little bit sharp. But clearly not, I wasn't being told off. It was just an observation. It was, was, a, it was an observation, observation with a little bit of a, you know, <laughs> here I am 50 years later and I remember it. Actually, I remember you telling that story on, on another occasion. Oh, well, so okay. obviously, yeah, I remember that. Because yeah. incidentally, Mamaki was the mother of a man who I was ordained with. Yeah. Very tall um, man. Yeah, Alan Drew, was. Yeah, yeah Drew yeah. Mutti is his yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hi, Drew Mutti, if you're listening. Yeah, hi. Uh, <laughs> What was it about that? What effect did it have on you? Because you obviously remember. I think it's it. one of those moments when you feel you've been seen, when you you feel that you know you can put down trying to be something. It's not like I was consciously trying to be something. It was just a face I'd lived in, which somehow I could just experiment with engaging without that. You know, it was a shock. I think it even stung a bit, but at the same time, I could just let go of something and be myself. You know, in a way that. I wasn't used to being, which in a way was quite a shock. It was a necessary step for me to take, to put down the need at that age, at that stage in my life, my career, to think I had to be someone. Okay, yeah, so you had this idea, I, I need to be somebody, I need yes. to be somebody yeah. clever and important and funny. And yeah, and that, that, that of comment of, oh, I'm really worried when I hear that, just came out of that shtick, you know, and uh, yeah. I could put it down and see what life was like without it. Yeah. So one of the things that fascinates me, because I wasn't around then, you've both described a culture, a way that people are with each other. And it seems like that was more than just the kind of general zeitgeist. There was something about our community that meant that people interacted in that way and still do. What do you think the conditions were that gave rise to that atmosphere? I wonder whether people were more willing to take risks. Maybe we also saw it was almost like a duty. You know, you were engaging with people. People had stepped into the Buddhist centre or people were saying they were interested in Buddhism or they wanted to change. And you had a duty to respond to that, to bring your reflections back to the person, to reflect them back in a particular way or will help modify them or help them grow, depending on how you want to think about it. Maybe we just took that very seriously. I, I don't know. And then it was also just playful and a laugh as well as, you know, being irritated with people and wanting to say things that were under the guise of feedback was just like just getting you know just being irritated with them yeah i suppose that's the other side of it isn't it, it? Is, it's, it's, it's you know there's the, the moments of satori and relief and and kindness and then there's also the pricklier end of human interactions where you're working together and trying to do things together and it, it sometimes there's quite a bit of friction yeah that's probably true i didn't particularly experience tons i mean i experienced dynamics between us but the first few years I was mostly living in a peer community so in a way nobody ruled the roost as it were Mm. nobody was head of the community we were all just wrestling with each other in various ways you know and presumably some of those people are still around I think they're all around yeah most of them ordained yeah 
In fact, I can only think of one person that isn't. It's strange, isn't it? Sometimes you get these little explosions of going for refuge. You know, like people are friends, and they said, "Oh, all three of us came to a class in 1982, and now we're all got ordained." These little moments where mm. something seems to come alive mm. in, in a centre or in yeah. a, a group. Thinking about that table talk with Mamaki, I think if they're alive, they're still involved. Mm. The people who were sitting at the table mm. that day, you know. So they, you know, again, yes, it was definitely a time. I mean, I would just chuck into the pot something that in those early days did help us to break the ice into other ways of being, apart from the fact we were doing a lot of practice. Sure. And a lot of us were relatively new and discovering wavelengths of ourselves that we hadn't experienced before. But we did these communication exercises. Right. Which yes, tell us about those. Very much a feature of true inner life. And somewhat, you know, falling into... Disusitude. Yes. <laughs> when two people looking at each other, there were three elements to it. For the first stage, you just sit and just look at someone for a little while and then stop and talk about it. Second stage, one person would have a sentence to say, do birds fly, water is wet, flowers grow here, the cow is in the field. And the other person would say, yes, okay, all right. The third stage was each person would have a sentence and they would just say their sentence to each other. You know, ridiculously simple, slightly surreal exercise. Sangaracha would walk among us as we did this and he'd ring a little bell and tell us we can stop and exchange notes and then do it again. And it it opened things up. It got energy going in retreats, which was a really useful feature of it just as something to deploy on a retreat. But I think although some people use the exercises to just practice their accents and (laughs) games they could play, with luck, most of us would realise that's not what it's about. And strangely, you'd realise that even if the exercise seemed unreal, you were real, that person was real, and how real were you prepared to be with each other? And it was astonishing that it worked as a medium for finding just a way of being yourself with another person. I mean, I found them, and still do, I mean, I met some in Australia not many years ago, and as ever, they really had a profound effect on people. I'm a bit sad we don't do we still do them yeah I noticed you said that you said so for instance the London Buddhist Centre on all their big open retreats they'll still do them great so they still get done here on their winter retreats that happen over Christmas super maybe two days running maybe three days running on both the Christmas and then the the New Year retreat yeah I did them on a it was an introductory course and uh, I couldn't believe the amount of energy in the room Mm -hmm. it was like an explosion was it an electric charge it was an electric (laughs) charge (laughs) (laughs) sorry thank you for bringing us back to that that's all right. That's beautiful. So tell us, <laughs> tell us about your talk. Because everyone had a bit of a digression. Um, well, yeah, I mean, in a way, you've talked about your I talk. Have, you've have. talked about well about communication and about how sometimes it might be communication between a friend, and sometimes it's just something coming in from somebody that you have an encounter with. Mm. Maybe you've never met them before, and maybe mm. you'll never meet them again. But mm. something comes across. Sure. And also, you said that Bante was a Kalyanamitra par excellence or something like well i think to certain people he was Mm. yeah i think what he did have was he had a strong vision for it and he set the movement running with it well it's interesting because i do think he's created a movement where a guru isn't that necessary right and that's because he's created a sangha that is engaging with each other in that way that's creating communication what's so what's his part in all that that's the bit that i'm curious about i mean in a way you've answered the question that he sort of had a vision for it and encouraged it he also had experience of what he didn't want a spiritual community to look like Mm -hmm. and maybe he also experienced you know is a guru necessary it was like i think there was a question that was growing out of 
the conversations he was having with people or the way people were relating to him, which would have been very much like a guru. This is 1971, I think, was Maybe, that, yeah. that talk sometime yeah, around Yeah, probably was, very yeah. early. So that's really only a few, that's sort of four years after mm. the movement set up. It's mm. really, really early on. Mm. And maybe he's thinking, am I a guru? Is a guru necessary to this movement? But also I think it was a question for himself. For all his devotion to his teachers, for all his respect and reverence to his teachers, he's like, but what is necessary? Is a guru necessary? I think he just knew how to create questions for himself existential questions for himself in a way that I think we're often very lazy. He doesn't just take everything for granted in a very literal way. Partly, I think, because that's just the, the nature of his own creativity and partly because when you're in the business of setting up a movement, you totally have to ask those questions so you understand why you're setting up in the way you do. Mm-hmm. And I was very struck years and years later. I was reading, I think it was on being an anagarica. It might have been Dharma Life. And whoever it is is interviewing different people who've made the step of celibacy in Tri Ratna were talking about the friendships that they had. And then they interviewed nuns, particularly nuns, and possibly monks from other traditions who had also taken a vow of celibacy. I remember one particular woman talking about her whole emotional nourishment came from doing the guru yoga. In other words, all she did was visualise her teacher above her head once a day, and that was the nourishment. And she had a very formal connection with everybody else. And I thought, wow, it's so different. Mm. So, so different from what we've set up here. Mm. Yeah. I think he had a vision for something, which I don't think we understand the power of it. I think it's because it looks so sort of day-to-day, you know, mm. cups of tea, coffees, friendship, ordinary conversation. I don't think we really fully understand that he's created something that's got quite a lot of power to it. That's really fascinating. How do you think he sort of saw himself? I mean, he did talk about how he saw himself. He didn't particularly like that word guru, did he? Or he didn't. Like and, and there's a lecture in which he completes a sort of kind of a paragraph saying, if you want to think of me as anything, you, know, you can think of me as a spiritual friend, or actually you can just think of me as a friend. And the sort of working definition he gave in the lecture is a guru necessary was, you know, a spiritual friend, a guru is somebody with whom you enter into a friendship and realise that you're getting more out of it than they are. But not because the person's teaching you in some conscious way. It's just they are, if you like, living on a, a richer, a purer, a more authentic level there's something about being around them that in various ways reminds you how you could be living on a higher level i mean when i met dada rinpoche and you know if just to go so to the top of the tree one of sagarashta's teachers, teachers yeah. i spent two days with him and probably about 12 hours talking to him through an interpreter during that time and when i got back to the place where i'd been staying in darjeeling prior to going to kalimpong somebody who'd been there before i'd left said so did you meet your lama and I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, what was it like? The words that came to me was, meeting him has made me reevaluate my idea of what it means to be a human being. Quite fundamental, isn't it? It was as fundamental as that. You know, so that's going to the top of the tree. But at some level or other, I guess what we're doing, what Sangharajita did. By the way, he lived with the sort of audacity of his authenticity, about how he was. Obviously, there was all his learning and what he could teach us about the Dharma and about meditation and so on. But there's just the sheer fact of this rather strange, rather unsettling, not always attractive person who was just stirring the pot all the time. Just sort of almost asking, well, are you really here? Do you mean it? That was the message that just came from him. And it was implicit. 
that kind of reached us in a general way. And I guess there were people who picked up on that maybe more quickly, more courageously than others. And they would bring their qualities into the pot. And gradually, this the quality of the way we communicated as a group in a very general way, plotting a, a general graph upgraded along the way there were mistakes missteps and all kinds of not so pretty moments but i'd say the general sort of trend was of people maturing under the influence of this challenge when i think this is what was so attractive about sangrachula was it was that implicit challenge that actually you couldn't shake off once you'd been around him you might not even like it you might not even feel that attracted to all of it but you couldn't shake him off You just knew he was living life on a bigger level, a richer level than you were. And it wasn't that you necessarily said, oh, I want that. It was more that, what am I doing then? Hmm. I mean, it's striking to me that there's quite a few order members who didn't find him very easy and haven't found him very easy. And yet they're still order members. No, I mean, I'd say I didn't always find him easy in my working life as his publisher. Actually, Mm. I found him, of all the jobs I could have had, it was one that exposed me Mm. to some of the sides of him that, you know, a lot of people find, you know, his pernicotiness, his anxiety. Yeah. There's several character qualities that weren't easy to live with as someone working with him. Well, particularly you were producing something which was very, very important to him. I mean, his writing Mm. and sharing the Dharma. I mean, that was about as close to his heart as anything could get. Mm. Yeah, and now you have written a book about him. And now I've written a book about him. Which is significant. One of the things that's significant about it is the first time somebody's written a book about him and they've been able to survey the whole of his life from the beginning to the end. That's a different sensibility. He's written Mm. New Voice in the West. Buddhist tradition tradition and bringing the Dharma to the West, which is partly biography, but this is the boy, the monk, the man. Which is the title of the book. This is a Sangharaccha to the boy, the monk, the man is the title, and it's, I mean, somewhere in my mind I call it a sketch biography. I mean, it's 350 pages, so, but I still mean it in that Sangharaccha, there were so many sides to him, so many qualities, so many achievements, I mean, such a richly lived life and such complexity that my book is, in a way, maybe I I feel like, yes, I've covered his life. I've tried to communicate something of the richness and complexity and the achievement, but it's also opening the way so that other people can write other books, drilling deeper. Yeah, you said that when I was talking to the other day. I found that really interesting. It's something that people can slot into, or how how do you think? Take his relationship with art and the imagination. It's woven through the book. I, I felt for a long time concerned that I should write a chapter about that side of his work, his life. And in the end, partly I didn't feel, it's not that I didn't feel up to it, but it was going to be a massive undertaking. And I was up against a tight deadline and a tight word count. So instead I wove elements of it through the whole book. But someone needs to write that book. Sure. For yeah. example... Vishwapani is working on something, looking quite deeply into the relationship between Sangrachita's character and his initiations, his Tibetan initiations and so on, and how that played out through his character and the emergence of the movement. I've seen a pilot chapter of it, it looks like really interesting stuff. Sabuti casually in conversation about a year ago let drop that he hoped to write a book about working closely with Sangrachita. So more of, a kind of a, more of a memoir or a personal account? Yeah, though knowing Sabuti, it'll probably have a very rich content dimension as well. David Mitra is writing an autobiography. He's hoping to finish before the disease catches up with him. But So, you know, there's all these things I'm aware of, which I think some of us need to get on with. 
Yeah, well, I mean, um, I, I was... Because we're all getting younger. Well, yeah, I mean, one doesn't want to be indelicate, but you, yeah. you can't help but think, I hope some of these stories are recorded yeah. because yeah. I've heard bits and pieces, yeah. but there's people that come after me and I've only heard a fraction of what's out there to be heard. You're nodding suddenly as I'm talking. I think it'd be great if there was like an audio sort of library. I know Dana Samudra has been trying to work on that on the women's side and just collate stories and conversations with different women about setting up the women's wing. Mm. But you sort of need almost like a kind of platform where you just record. A booth you walk into. You just, yes, yeah, exactly. Press, press record. Or you do yeah. something on your telephone yes. and then you just send and it, and it lands somewhere and it just gets you know, stored. It's a great and, idea. Yeah, it's quite, quite, These days, quite simple. Yeah, yeah. Really well, simple. yeah. Well, what we're talking about is more material. I mean, when I yeah. thought, my goodness, I think we had this conversation before. If you were going to write not a 350 page biography, but maybe you could write multi volume biography. And if you, if you wanted to go through all of the material, it would be a very, very, very big yeah. task. I mean, just thinking yeah. of the boxes of letters. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, typically that's what one would do if you're going to write a biography. Well, I walked into and his study at Marjorie Maloka one day, going back maybe 10 years, and he was really proud because there was a row of shelves which had just been put up, and there were all these box files, and he got his correspondence in order. And he said, because, of course, my biographer will need access to all this. He was looking at me. And I, I couldn't change the conversation quicker <laughs> because the thought of that, yeah, there is so much material. I mean, good luck to whoever writes the official yeah. biography. I mean, I suppose it's characteristic of him, yeah. isn't it? As he'd yeah. be thinking about that, he yeah. always seemed to be thinking about, well, what next? Well, he, he, he thought in historical terms, didn't he? He thought of his place in history. It was part of his mindfulness. He was aware of how he was walking and how he was sitting and he was aware of how he fitted into history. History. Yeah, and that, yeah, sometimes that comes across as being slightly being slightly self-aggrandizing. Yes. You're nodding again, suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I think sometimes it feels a bit like that to mm. me. That correspondence that Van, you know, all the boxes, which is probably about the size oh, of this pile yes. of books. So that we're, just to say, we're, we're actually in the Sangaracha Library, and behind me, there's probably a bookshelf which is, let's say, about two about meters, three meters. Well, I'd say, th- yeah, two meters by about six or eight meters. Yeah, that's rather, rather large. Yeah, I'll show you the, the boxes. Oh, I'd love to see them. Yeah, I'll yeah, sh- I'll take <laughs> you there. Well, it will tell the history of Sangaracha. Although I think, really, what you've done, Nagabodi, with the material you had, that, it's enough as well. Yeah. But that kind of detail, mm. it will tell the history of the movement because mm-hmm. it brings all the other players onto the stage. Mm-hmm. Sangaraksha played a particular relationship in that, in that he was the receiver of those players. But whether how much that would be part of his life story, I don't know. Well, that's van, the, you know, the question of self-aggrandising. Oh, yes, mm. going back Some to people that. talk about vanity. Mm. Yeah. I can see it's easy to think that. Mm. And I'm very aware of the pressure he'd put me under to get his books out and how he wanted his poetry out and you know, put me under considerable strain sometimes. But no, I do give him the benefit of the doubt in that respect. Yes, he had this driving urge to share himself. It was in his friendships, in his close, intimate friendship. One after the other, what you hear <coughs> is just how he poured his life story into you know, his friend's ears. You know, he's really very open. In the same way, he really wanted to share his knowledge of the Dharma, his experiences of driving around New Zealand, for example, in travel letters in those books. I just think he thought it was important for the movement that he was as fully present with it to accompany it into the future. He knew that things would evolve and change with circumstances and people and so on, no question. I don't think he envisaged some monolithic movement that never changed. But I think he recognised it would be a long time before the movement 
didn't need his presence as, as a force, as a, a sort of accompanying force. And I think that's why he was so keen to get as much as he could of you know, his heart and his mind recorded in some way. I think it was a sober, considered strategy, just as it was a considered strategy that he obviously was no longer living as a monk after his time at the Hampstead Vihara, but when he came to Pundarika to this first centre, you know, he'd wear robes. And when he was leading a retreat, he'd wear robes. I think, yes, there was a ritual dimension, and Bounty was very strong on ritual, but also, as he put it to me, you know, he was the bridge between the old world, the Eastern world, and our world. And he gave it thought he probably saw the, the future possibility of contradictions between, say, his sexual behaviour and the fact he was in robes some of the time. He wasn't stupid. He would have known that might one day be a problem. But I think he also thought, more important, that he didn't just turn up to teach about Buddhism in a sports jacket, that it would do something to how we perceived him and took him. He wore, at least for a while, robes. I think he was well capable of thinking, you know, strategically in that way. Mm -hmm. And seemed to be also capable of putting himself at the service of whatever needed to happen. Oh, no, he was totally in service. He was totally in service. Can you say a bit more about that? Because he had quite a bit to do with them. Yeah, no, no, totally. And actually it was in the last few years of his life when I was doing all those interviews with him about his poetry and, and also before that the decades with all the items from his different decades. It was this sort of mutual service, actually. He was... So he saw me as ch- I was chair, and he saw me as a figurehead, and that I was important, and he was in service to me. But he knew he could feel that I was in service to him. This was unspoken, but it was like we met as two people trying to do our best with duty and responsibilities to each other, but also to the whole the institution we were working in, or the or the movement. I remember once saying to him, look, I know you don't like your photograph being taken at the moment, Bunty, and, but actually I'm going to need some photographs of you at Adistana because otherwise when you die, they'll just be of, of Majmaloka and Padmaloka or whatever and you won't exist, you know, in Adistana mm. in that respect. And he said, oh, OK, then suddenly I'm doing like this. And he was really, really in service, yeah. Mm. And it's what he's passed on to us as well, I think. Well, serving something higher. Really serving something higher. Yeah. Just to get back to True Ratna Day, I mean, that was the idea for True Ratna Day. It's called Roots in the Earth, which is about people going to new places to start things, to take what they've learned and to do some of the things we've been talking about, encounter people deeply and Mm. share something Mm. of real value. Mm. And at the same time, the Roots in the Sky bit is about trying to put people in contact with something that's above and beyond them, Mm. that they can feel part of, that they can... Mm participate in Mm. so both seem really important you know we're not just about bums on seats you know what I mean but we're also this other dimension that we're trying to bring into the world which seems really subversive in a really positive way to to bring that into this world that we live in in a way I'm quite keyed up for Churatna Day to kind of celebrate that what Mm. is it that you think subversive well I suppose in a way to have a transcendental vision of what Um. a human being can be a little bit like what you were saying Um. about just challenging a notion of what a human being can be so Mm. you talked about you know your encounters with Dada Rinpoche and Mm. coming away feeling you just had to rethink what you thought you were and what people were yeah yeah, and I'd yeah. love I'd love it if we were able to do that mm. into the future and just challenge that idea about what mm. a person is. Mm. The phrase comes from Bante. He it said, does, yeah, you yeah. know, you, if we're going to thrive as a Buddhist community, we need to put down very deep roots. We need to have our roots in the sky. We need to have deep sources of sustenance, which is a very strange mm. way of putting things. Mm. But and that, even that's kind of challenging. I've been really taken with it. 
So do join us for Tree Rut in a Day. We're going to have six events over the course of the day to begin with an international metabhavna. So Surya Gupta is going to lead us in a metabhavna. Friends are going to be rejoicing in friends from around the world. And then we'll have the second session will be Nagabodi talking about his book. Uh, who are you going to be talking about your oh, book? With? Well, I suppose I don't quite see it that way. What I'm doing is sitting down with Paramatha. He lives in Melbourne. He is a member of the order. And I think it's fair to say that he was Bandhi's closest friend. And for a lot of that time, companion, you know, living around him here or at, at Marjimaloka and Padmaloka, travelled with Bandhi, just got to know him very, very deeply over 30 years. I mean, the book is sort of there as a, a pretext, but we're just going to, we're going to talk. We're going to try and work out how you do a conversation online with a microphone and, you know, how we don't trip over each other and see if we can just have a conversation. To be honest, I've been interviewed very beautifully by Sadhanandi and, and Dhamma Mega about the book. So I don't think we need to have him interview me about the book. I think we need to sit down and talk. I think people might be interested to hear what he has to say. Mm. Don't really want to put him under pressure if he hears this, but I think people would be just very interested to hear about his friendship with Sankarachi. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear yeah. what he has to say. Yeah. I'm really interested. Yeah. So that's the second event, only the second event. And then the third event is something that's happening here at Adistana, just about a stone's throw from where we're sitting, which is a talk by Sadanandi, and that's part of a whole four weekend. Days. Four days of events. So four tell days. us a little bit about what's happening at Adistana. Yeah, so we've got a four-day event. Uh, starts on the Thursday evening, finishes on the Monday. 70 or 80 people resident here throughout the whole weekend. Maybe 20 or 30 people join us from local situations or groups that aren't so far away. They'll come in on the Saturday for Tree Ratna Day and then celebrate Tree Ratna Day with us. We hope to integrate all of those people into the dining room and into the shrine room and into the talk like that. The whole weekend that we're doing is based on this lecture, Is a Guru Necessary? Which is a bit risque to be you know, asking that question right with... Banti being buried and just up outside the door, right at the heart of Tree Ratna or right at the heart of Adistana. But it was a question he asked himself and I felt I want to honour him. Why not ask, mm. ask the question well? Mm. Be kind of fearless in how we look at it. Mm. And then in that I'm going to give a talk. So I'll be giving the second talk of the weekend and that'll be going out to the audience online. Mm. I have so, yet to write it. So, well, I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is interesting when you revisit something... The context is different, isn't it? Sure. So their talk was given more than 50 years ago. Yeah, so Kishantikara, in the day before, will give a bit more of his take on that talk. Kishantikara is the young person's coordinator who lives here. A mixture of works for Adistana and also the European Chairs Assembly. He's organising, he's, he's the kind of mind behind all of this. I've come up with the content, a bit of the content, and he's put everything together and shaped it all. It's a big team, big residential team, which starts with a massive breakfast on Thursday morning Wonderful. to kick us off. Yeah. Wonderful. So we're going to hear from Sadanandi, the yeah. third event of the day. And yeah. then the fourth event of the day will be, uh, it's called Roots in the Earth. So this is about those people who are taking the Dharma to new places right now. So we're going to hear from Susanna and hopefully Lily in Tokyo. Triratna activities are starting in Tokyo. And we're going to hear from Manju Priya and Leonardo in Brazil and what they're doing down there. And we're also going to hear a little bit closer to home in Ireland, a new retreat centre that's being built in the west of Ireland. Mm. So that's going to be about celebrating that aspect of our community. The fifth event is Roots in the Sky. So this is looking at our Triratna refuge tree. So it's a beautiful big image that mm. Shintamani painted. And we'll be staying in front of that image. And then I'll be there with Ratna Dharani. And we'll talk a little bit about it. And then we've got three public preceptors. 
Parami from Scotland, Nagapriya from Mexico, and Aditya Bodhi from India, mm. talking about particular figures on the tree and why they're significant to them, why Sangharachita might have chosen to put them on there. Mm. Then there'd actually been an opportunity to ask questions. If you've got questions for public preceptors, we ought to send in your questions. And then finally, the last event is we're going to take a trip to the Mexico City Buddha Center. So we're going to go to Latin America and have a tour around their beautiful center. It's mm. really quite... It's, impressive. Yeah, impressive, mm. beautiful building. And they've got an impressive, beautiful sangha. Having had a look around the place, we'll join them for a, a puja, which will be in Spanish and English. Oh. And that will bring our throughout the day to a close. So if you're interested in all of that or any of that, do please join us. You'll find web links at your usual outlets. We'll hope to see you there. So just to finish off, thanks very much, Nagabodi, and thank you very much, Sadanandi. It's been a real It's been a pleasure. pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Really yeah. nice. Yeah, to talk yeah. to you both. Great, yeah. thank you. Yeah. See you on the day. Yeah, wonderful. See you.